Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The United States has announced it will from now on be treating ransomware attacks like terrorism, putting cyber criminals and attackers on notice that the United States is likely to go after them aggressively. Uh, in the U.S., ransomware attacks on the Columbia Pipeline happened, what, three weeks ago? Was it three weeks, four weeks ago? And this week, the world's largest meat processing company, JBS of Brazil, with a major operation in the U.S., was also attacked. And then the question becomes, how vulnerable is Canada's infrastructure to cyber attack and ransomware? Dr. Kristen Luprecht is a professor at RMC, the Royal Military College, and Queen's University. He's a senior fellow with the MacDonald Laurier Institute. His forthcoming book is Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft by Oxford Press, or published by Oxford Press. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Christian, thank you very much for joining us. I want to go back to something you said last time you were on the program. At least I think you said that there is, in fact, a cyber war ongoing now. Yes. Right. So it's a permanent conflict. We're uh, under permanent and constant attack, our government network, our private sector networks um, and individual citizens. And with the pandemic, that's only increased the, uh, the threat surface. If you look at this over, say, the last 30 years or so, you've had a proliferation of threat actors, not just state actors, but the significant proliferation of non-state actors, many of which um, are harbored by adversarial regimes, in particular Russia. You've had a significant reduction in the cost of getting into this game. It is highly asymmetric, so your investment on the front end is relatively low versus uh, the investments in the defense side are, are, uh, are relatively high. And so it, it has meant that for government, uh, they've had to expand massively their collaboration because it's not just about their own network, it's protecting society at large. And that raises a whole bunch of legis uh, legislative and sort of privacy issues um, in a domain that um, politicians by and large don't understand and the public don't understand very well. So that means uh, our decision-making processes, our legislative frameworks and our response capacities are not as agile as we would need them to be to contain these persistent efforts by our adversaries to undermine us politically, economically, um, and in cyberspace. So the next uh, logical question for me to ask you then would be about Canadian vulnerabilities and what can, should, must we do? I think that's the next logical question. What would, must we do to protect our infrastructure from debilitating cyber attack? Yeah, so it's a challenging environment because conventionally we think about this as keeping our country safe within our borders. But of course, in the 21st century, increasingly, we live in an environment where um, the threats are transnational. So we're set up in sort of a state-based framework to protect ourselves, but the threats, if you think about cyber, you think about um, money laundering, for instance, uh, you think about intellectual property type issues, you think about um, uh, pathogens, biosecurity, these are all transnational uh, challenges. And so um, it's, it's difficult in this environment simply to play defense when your adversaries are all over you all the time. So you need to have some offensive capacity, not necessarily to go after your adversaries, but at least on the intelligence side to understand what your adversaries are up to. And this presents a particular challenge when you talk about non-state actors, because, um, of course, states such as which perpetrate most of the ransomware attacks, for instance, that you uh, that you talked about that cost the global economy about $18 billion last year. 
Um, and so our tools are limited when it comes to non-state actors. And so the U.S. move has been highly debated. It's highly contentious to classify these types of attacks now as terrorism, but it means that it opens a whole host of legislative tools and options to the United States, including retaliation to take out some of these actors. But the most important component is that um, the message is that if you engage in this type of effort, yes, you can try to extract a few million dollars here and there uh, from Western companies, but it means that if you now travel outside of Russia and you try to spend that money uh, in Paris, in London, in New York, or wherever you might like to travel to, you'll notice that uh, we're going to be looking to arrest you and we're going to be looking to have you extradited uh, and to put you in jail in the U.S. And that in itself um, uh, should hopefully be uh, at least somewhat of a deterrent uh, to some of these nefarious actors to think twice about whether this is a business in Michigan they want to engage in. This is interesting, particularly since there's going to be the meeting between President Biden and President Putin uh, very shortly. And Putin has said uh, he's denied that Russia has any involvement whatsoever. And Biden has said he doesn't believe that the uh, Russian government is involved. But can you operate that kind of uh, organization within Russia with, without Putin's at least tacit approval? And, uh, and what is this going to lead to? Is, is, Putin, is Putin challenging Biden and, and, and Washington? Yeah, I mean, Putin loves the attention that he gets, right? So, so Putin is like sort of your schoolyard bully that just craves attention of any sort that he can get. So um, whether it's, and, and these particularly these international meetings, because he always tries to draw attention from the Americans. And so part of this is sort of posturing on his part, but attribution is not as difficult as people often make it out to be. And in many cases, um, especially in ransomware attacks, there are certain sort of, if you want calling cards that people leave behind in the process of transferring cryptocurrency and so forth. So we have a reason reasonably good idea of where these actors are located. We know that Russia effectively harbors, um, uh, it's essentially cyber piracy, and Russia is essentially harboring these uh, these pirates. And it's particularly tragic because it's the usual Russian duplicity, uh, because just last week it became public that the uh, group of governmental experts uh, of the United Nations um, open-ended working group on cyber, which is sort of 13 key countries in the cyber domain, including Russia, China, uh, the US, Germany, France, Brazil, um, had reached a tentative agreement um, on specifying the norms that they had stood up in 2015 of, of how we're going to be, how people should behave in cyberspace. And one of those is that you're not going to harbor uh, nefarious non-state actors knowingly. Um, and so that Putin in that same week comes out and basically completely absolves himself of any responsibility shows that we're unfortunately very long ways away from people behaving uh, according to sensible international norms. And that's why I think Biden that same week also uh, upped the ante by saying, well, then we're going to be taking our state-based measures and we're going to be treating this as terrorism. Um, and I think that's a, that's a significant escalation. But there's a real risk here that one of these attacks uh, with intentionally or unintentionally, uh, may cause such uh, damage, either intentionally or by second-order effects, that it could cause uh, a country such as the U.S. to retaliate in a kinetic or other type of fashion that could seriously endanger uh, international security. And so we need to constrain um, these nefarious adversarial actors in this space uh, from acting in ways that are currently absolutely reckless and irresponsible when it comes to international security. Christian, in the two minutes I've left, I, I can't let you go without uh, sharing your thoughts 
on the investigation into People's Liberation Army scientists, or China's uh, official scientists within their People's Liberation Army, under the direction of Beijing, I'm sure, gaining access into Canada's highest security national microbiology laboratory in Winnipeg, working on the world's most dangerous pathogens alongside Canadian researchers, so much so that CSIS became engaged, and the two scientists were actually walked out, fired, and walked out of the facility, and now nobody seems to know where they are, and the RCMP is investigating, and the government's being quiet about it. What are your thoughts on what's going on? So it fits quite nicely with the previous story because I think we only see these isolated pieces to the puzzle. But this is part of a much broader puzzle by China in particular to press Western countries as hard as it can on all possible fronts and undermine us wherever we can. There's only a handful of these level four labs around the world, in particular the Western world. And so if you're having trouble getting into the lab in the UK, Australia or Canada or, or the United Kingdom, uh, then you might as well try to infiltrate the, uh, the Canadian lab. And I think, yes, there's concerns about the pathogens. I think this poses a serious national security risk. But more broadly speaking, I think this was a blatant espionage operation. They wanted to know what is what are the five eyes uh, intelligence countries working on? What are their capacities? What do they know about China? Uh, and so they pick the weakest link. So I think there's some sighing in Ottawa uh, over why it is that Canada again ended up being the weakest link here. But I think there's also considerable concern that I suspect that the uh, now that the Trudeau government has declared it's a national security matter and has said it will not be turning over any documentation, it probably shows that there was a lengthy ongoing investigation before they were actually fired. There's probably a continuing a criminal investigation and security intelligence investigation um, and that the documentation probably shows that the tip-off that we ultimately got, that we have moles in the lab, uh, probably came from an ally and so we don't want to divulge the methods and sources uh, by which we got onto them. The upside is that we probably provide allies with considerable ability to see what the Chinese are up to in our level four uh, lab and also what the capacities of the Chinese are. But the long and short of it is China is working on some extremely dangerous uh, bio-warfare capabilities, much more dangerous than the, than the Soviet Union ever engaged in. Um, and so we have to wake up that on this front, whether we're talking about cyber or we're talking about biosecurity, um, we have to take this seriously because we're inadvertently underwriting uh, China's uh, bioweapons programs through the illicit sharing of intellectual property and more broadly um, uh, capabilities and understandings of, of what the West uh, can do um, and uh, is aware of in this particular domain. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.